0: Right, good morning. How are we doing? Are we good? Ready to wrap up Genesis? All right. It's has been a fun study. Uh, Genesis 42 through the rest of the book we got, uh, which is chapter 50. We got an amazing story about forgiveness. And who doesn't love forgiveness? Maybe you guys. Maybe it's not an amazing story. <laughs> I mean, forgiveness is such a great thing. If you've kind of been Uh, you wrong somebody that you care about and you just feel awful about that and then they extend forgiveness to you. Is that not an amazing feeling? Or let's just up it. Uh, We've sinned against a holy God. We are deserving of his wrath and instead we get grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Isn't forgiveness an awesome thing? We just started there. How about the forgiveness that we're called to extend to other people? Are you a good forgiver of others? Like when somebody wrongs you, hurts you, are you a good forgiver of somebody else? And it's a big deal. Just to put some more weight in that truck so we can kind of feel what we're being called to, here's some things that Jesus said about our call to forgive others. It says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's weighty. Then Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? He's feeling good about that answer. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, like just keep extending this forgiveness. Here's another one. And whatever, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone <clears throat> so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. Like, your forgiveness of other people is a weighty thing. In fact, Jesus connects it to the forgiveness you receive from God. Let me just ask you again, like, are you a good forgiver of other people? And maybe when I say that, like, you have somebody that came to mind. You have something that came to mind. You're bothered that we're talking about this because you don't want to think about it. And you don't want to be pressured to forgive somebody you know you should forgive, but you don't want to forgive. If that's you, I'll pause, we'll pray, you can leave now. Okay, let me just pray. No, I'm kidding. You can't leave. We lock the doors. You're here. But it's such a tough topic. It's like this Like we feel the angst. Like when somebody hurt me, they said that to you. They like they did that to you. We struggle with extending the same kind of forgiveness. And it can often seem like people have very fragile relationships. You know what I mean by that? Like they break easy. Like we're good, but as soon as you wrong me, like I, I'm out. <clears throat> I'll find new friends. I'll find a new spouse. I'll find a new job. Like, like, we're just done here. Like, we have something, but it can just break really easy. But should that be true of Christians? I mean, what if I told you that there is a truth, a doctrine, that's hard, that's resisted? In fact, I know this is going to be an email week. I just know it, right? It's resisted. It's hard. It's difficult. It's clear in Scripture. And when you embrace it, when you kind of surrender to it, it does bring about greater peace, increases your worship and awe of God, and it improves you as a forgiver of other people. And, and the truth that we need to understand in order to see those things grow in our lives is the sovereignty of God. And when we say sovereignty, we mean like supreme power and authority, authority. So when I'm talking about the sovereignty of God, or when we say that God is sovereign, what we mean is that God has a power and authority that is over all other powers and authorities. Like he is supreme in his control and he governs everything. God tells lightning where to strike. He tells wind where to blow. Like he governs everything. And there's numerous passages to support this. But let me just kind of like throw three of them at you. This is in Daniel chapter 4. He says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, God, does according to his will among the hosts of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Like he does what he wills and no one can stop him. That's what he's saying. Here's another one. This is Ephesians 1. He says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. All things. And it's really interesting because if you study Greek, all things in Greek means all things. So just note that. (laughs) All things according to the counsel of his will. So he's working all things to his will. He has a will and everything's working towards that. Here's another one. This is Proverbs 69. It says, The heart of a man plans his way But the Lord establishes steps. It's like, I'm sure you got all kinds of plans. But let me tell you what's going to happen. The will of God. There's another proverb where he says, like, the the heart of a king is like water in his hands. Like, he's going to direct it. Like, God is sovereign over all things. In fact, one of the biggest places in Scripture that reinforce this truth, maybe difficult truth, is in the story that we're going to look at today. But this is a doctrine that's going to cook your brain a little bit. Like You're going to try to get your mind around this and you're going to bump into your own frustration. You're going to try to reason with your own intellect. And it's going to be frustrating because if God is sovereign over all, then why is this world a mess? And why did I have to go through that? And why did you put me in that? Why did this happen? And I got got issues because if you're sovereign over all, I'm docking points. You're not a great manager. Like we have frustrations with what happens. And I'm just going to tell you my goal up front. I want to to better grasp the sovereignty of God in all things. And not in some kind of like theological, you know, four of us are going to geek out about this in scripture. Like something that all of us can grasp, because when we do, it has real implications on your heart, your emotions, your life. It increases your peace, even when things are are not going well. In fact, especially when things are not going well. It increases your worship, that this is a God beyond your comprehension, that you can trust and you should be in awe of him. And this increases your forgiveness of others because it's not just that person that did this to you. There's somebody beyond that person that's really pulling the strings in this world. And you can trust him and he's good. Like it has real impact on our life. So we're going to jump into this. We got Genesis 42 through 50. And again, I'm not going to read that whole section. I want to kind of tell you the story, but then I want to go and highlight some things that are said in there to help us become better forgivers of other people. If we could recap, uh, you guys remember Joseph? He's Jacob who... Name was changed to Israel, uh, his favorite son, because he was born of his favorite wife. That's descriptive, not prescriptive. Hopefully you don't have a favorite wife or a favorite son. But that was Joseph's situation. And his brothers were jealous. So they were going to kill him. But instead of killing him, they are like, "Rather, let's just sell him. And last week we looked at this. Joseph was sold into slavery into Egypt. He, he was... Uh, falsely accused of sexual misconduct with his first employer he was wrongfully thrown in jail he was forgotten about in jail and he rises to power because he's able to interpret dreams and the the people he was in jail with uh remembered this and he, they give him a recommendation to pharaoh because Pharaoh's having these dreams he's having these dreams about some, some freaky dreams about some cows He's got seven fat cows, you got seven thin cows, and the thin cows eat the fat cows, and he's like, I got nothing. Like, what is this? Did I just late night burrito? What like I don't know what I'm thinking here. (laughs) Joseph tells him, here's what's gonna happen: you're gonna have seven years of plenty, and then you're gonna have seven years in famine. And you need to store up your food for seven years so that you're able to provide for your people for the next seven years. And when you're that high, like Pharaoh, you can delegate. He's like, that sounds great. You're in charge. So Joseph gets to be the second in charge in all of Egypt. And the famine happens. They have the seven years of plenty. And now when our story picks up, they're two years into the seven years of famine. And guess what? Joseph's family needs to eat. And they're running out of food. So they go to Egypt. And they go to Egypt to kind of bow down to Joseph to get their food. This is the dream's becoming reality here. But they don't recognize Joseph. Joseph recognizes them. You can imagine this is a mixed emotion meeting here. Tensions are high. Joseph accuses them of being spies. <clears throat> he's like, no, he knows they're not spies, but they also sold them into slavery, right? So he's like, you're here to spy out this land because you were weak and you're going to try to t- take us over. And they're like, we just want some food, right? And he like, inv- who are you? Where are you from? And he gets their story and, uh, and the brothers. And one brother is not with them, Benjamin. The youngest, who is Joseph's brother from the same mom, Jacob's favorite. Well, he's not with him, so Joseph takes one brother, Simeon, into custody. He's like, "All right, if you want him back, then you need to bring Benjamin back." Right? So they go back and they tell, and he gives them some grain, uh, and he secretly replaces their money that they they gave to get this food. He puts it back in their sack. So they're a little freaked out when they find out their money's still there. Like, we didn't steal this. We tried to pay for it. But they go back, and they tell Jacob the situation. Jacob's heartbroken. Like, I already lost Joseph. I'm not losing Benjamin. Like, this is not, no, we're not doing this. But they eventually run out of food, and they need more food. So they go back. And this time, if they're going to go back, they've got to go back with Benjamin, and they bring Benjamin. And the other brothers, they're, like, trying to assure their dad, like, we won't let anything happen to Benjamin like, we know the pain you went through with Joseph. We won't let anything happen to Benjamin. So they go, and they're nervous because they, they found the money from last time. And they're like, we didn't steal it. Honestly, <laughs> we didn't steal it. Um, but they're nervous. So Joseph this time throws a big feast for all his brothers. <clears throat> and he favors Benjamin at this feast. Because what was the beef before? Jacob favored Joseph, and his brothers got all jealous. That's how it all started. He's like, well, I'm going to see how you react when I favor Benjamin. So Benjamin's at this feast and he's getting like the big cuts of meat. He's getting served first. Like he's getting the royal treatment and Joseph's just kind of watching this to see how this plays out. And then Joseph sets up Benjamin. He puts his silver cup in his bag on their way home. And before you leave Egypt, it's like flying. You got to go through security checks and they check his bag and they find the silver cup in there. He's like, You're a thief. It's like, I don't know how I got there. It's like, Yeah, that's what I hear all the time, right? So they go back. It's like, Well, you got to die because you don't steal from Pharaoh. And now the brothers are like, No, don't, don't do this. We didn't, we didn't take it. They're pleading. And Judah offers himself for Benjamin. Now, I'm not going to get into it, but you've got this beautiful ark of redemption in the life of Judah. Right, Judah now offers himself for his brother. And Joseph just couldn't take it anymore. Like Joseph does a lot of crying in this story. Like the first time he sees his brothers, he runs out crying. When he sees Benjamin, he runs out crying. And now in this moment where like he sees his brothers caring for Benjamin, like he wished they would have cared for him. He just couldn't take it anymore. And he just starts crying. And He's like, I'm your brother. I I'm your brother. Because before, like, they were, they started talking in their native language, don't, didn't think that he could understand them, but he could. And they're like, all this bad stuff is happening because of the way we treated Joseph, right? Runs out crying again. Like, he, he knows what's going on. And he couldn't take it anymore. He's like, it's me. Now, if you sold your brother into slavery, and then you get this reveal that he's now this powerful person in Egypt, I don't know how comfortable you feel in this moment. Right, He's like, it's me, I'm, I'm here. But he, he extends this forgiveness to them and he invites the family to come live in Egypt because we've got five more years left of this famine. But it's like, should they go? Shouldn't they go? I mean, they're in the promised land. Like, they're, Where were they supposed to be? Like, This is where God sent them. We're not supposed to be in Egypt. We're supposed to be in the land of Canaan. But God gives Jacob a, a dream or a vision. This is in 46, uh, verse two. He says, and God spoke to Israel in a vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. He said, I, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you a great nation. And he did. That's where the family turns into a nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand will close your eyes. It's like you're going to die there. He's saying, this is a good thing. Like I'm in this, you need to do this, you need to go. So they go to Egypt and they're connected with Joseph second in charge. So they thrive there. It's like, oh, you're shepherds. Why don't you be Pharaoh's personal shepherd? You take the good land, you take the good sheep and they set up and they're in a good situation there. Now I want to make just kind of a economic political observation. Uh, The government stored up food for seven years and then there's no food for the next seven years. So who has all the food? Right, and if you, you need to get food, you need to buy it, and then you run out of money. Now what? you sell your land, so who owns all the land? the government, right and then you still need to eat. what do you do next? You sell yourself, and now you're a slave, and this kind of famine kind of brought about this economic Uh, big reach power, big government in in Egypt. Like they kind of, they owned all the land because they had all the food, they have all the money, and now they even own all the people. But Jacob uh, is, is, and his family are there. He eventually blesses his kids, gives a little favor to the younger ones. There's his own personal story as well. Uh, And then he dies. And there's this kind of, all of Egypt mourns kind of a royal funeral. They go back to bury him in the promised land. A lot of bigwigs go with him. It's a big deal. But when he dies, the brothers kind of have this aha moment, like, oh, now the dad's gone. We might be in trouble again. In fact, this is what they say. This is at the in verse 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of your servants, of the God of your father. So Joseph wept. He's crying a lot. When they spoke to him, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Like, there's some, there's some difficult stuff going on here. Well, Joseph forgives them. He extends them grace and forgiveness in that moment. And my question that I want to raise this morning is how? Not why. Maybe we can get there. But how? Like, how emotionally, how mentally can he forgive his brothers that sold him into slavery, wanted to kill him at first, he, he spent time as a servant. He was wrongfully jailed. This has been like over two decades of his life. How is he able to forgive? Like, where, where, where do you get that? How, where does that come from? Or think of it this way. Who's the original audience of this letter? The Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness. How are they supposed to trust a God who allowed them to be enslaved for 400 years? Or let's bring it home to us. How are you supposed to stay faithful to God when he allows you to go through such hard, difficult things? How are you supposed to extend forgiveness when people so wrongfully treat you? Not, not why, how? Like, where do you find the strength emotionally to do that? And I think we get some pretty good, hard but clear answers uh, in this story. Let, let me just tell you the big idea up front. Um, And then I want to point it out in the text uh, as we see it. And that is that people who see a sovereign God or people who recognize a sovereign God more easily extend serious grace. People who recognize a sovereign God more easily (laughs) extend serious grace. You could say people who recognize a sovereign God more easily endure serious trials, too. But that's not what we want to focus on. I want to focus on the extending of grace, the extending of forgiveness, because that's a really important event that happens uh, in this section of our story. So let me give you some context. Go back to verse 45, if you will, and I want to jump into the story at the point where Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Verse 4, he says this. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please, And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Let me just clarify this. I'm your brother, who you sold, who you mistreated. Like, now now this is the moment where it's like, oh no, what's next? How is this going to go? And then he says this, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. Like he comforts their emotion. Don't be scared. Don't be angry. Don't be mad at yourself. Because you sold me here. For God sent me. Now, you sold me here. And God sent me. You sold me. God sent me. Which one is it? (laughs) Did you sell me? Yes, they did. Did God send me? Yes, he did. And it's both are being presented. You did this. You sold me here. And God sent me here. And and you're like, well, how do these two things go together? I don't know, but they're true. They're true. Like, listen to me. The brother's sinful selling was God's sovereign sending. The brother's sinful selling was God's sovereign sending. There was one event and two different motives. They had an evil motive. They had a sinful motive. And God had a good motive, an honoring motive, a purposeful motive. And both are true of this event. Then let me finish the verse. He says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. There's the bigger picture. So you've got to see this bigger picture. And here's the bigger picture. It was to preserve life. There was meaning in my pain of what Joseph is saying. There was a reason. There was a, a God-ordained purpose behind my suffering. And now I see it. He sees the bigger picture for Joseph. He spent 22 years. You can do the math in the story. He spent 22 years from the time he was sold by his brothers to this moment. 22 years of his life. Slavery, wrongfully Accused, wrongfully jailed the suffering that he went through the absence of his family he was probably 17 when he got sold you put yourself in issues the heartache the difficulty 22 years of his life and now at this point he's like I can see the bigger picture I see the purpose behind my suffering I see the reason behind it for the Israelites they spent 400 years in slavery saying you need to see the bigger picture because for Joseph it's not just about my life God is up to something here. God's doing something for our family, for his plan, for the Israelites. It's like, it's not just about your life. God's plan is at stake here. He's fulfilling his promise back in Genesis 3. He's protecting it. He's guarding it. He's bringing it about. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than your experience. It's bigger than what's done to you. And No, that doesn't justify sin. This doesn't make it okay. It just frames it into a bigger context. You with me on that? It doesn't justify sin doesn't give it permission or approval. It just frames it into a bigger context. Listen, Christians are called to see more than just their circumstances. Christians are called to, more to, to see more than just what was done to you, what was said to you, how you were treated. Christians are called to see our circumstance, circumstances in the context of a sovereign God working out his plan and his purposes. We've got to see the, the bigger picture. And God is sovereign over all, even the hard things. Even the sinful things. They have a place. And maybe it's hard to see it when you're in the pit. Maybe it's hard to see it when you're in the jail. But there comes a time, like for Joseph on this side, he's like, oh, now I get it. Oh, now I see the, now I see the reason that happened. Now I see what God was doing. I didn't see it before, but now, now I get it. And when he, got, when he got it, he was able to extend grace and forgiveness. But he's like, now I see it. And he's like, God is sovereign over everything everything. What if we saw it now? What if you could see it in the pit? What if you could see it in the jail? What if you had a perspective of faith that you saw and trusted the sovereign God that he is involved in every detail? Even this one, look look at the example here. I'll go back to out of our section of chapter 41. It's verse 25. So there's a famine in this place. Why is there a famine? Just because it's a fallen world, and sometimes crops grow, and sometimes they don't? Well, this is what it says, verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Talking about the famine. God's going to do it. Or verse 28. He says, it is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Or verse 32. And the thing is fixed by God, and he will shortly bring it about where the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and he will shortly bring it about. Like the famine came upon the land because God brought the famine. God did that. It was part of God's plan to bring it about. And guess what? When Joseph was just a shepherd having those dreams, God was still sovereign. And when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, God was still sovereign. And when Joseph was wrongly accused of sexual misconduct, he was still sovereign. And when he was wrongly in prison, God was still sovereign. And when that famine came, God was still sovereign. And then when he brought the family to Egypt and you saw the pieces come together, Jesus was like, oh, you're sovereign. Like, now I get it. Now I see all the pieces. Now I see your hand at work in everything. But God is sovereign and he governs all things. Let's look at uh, how he puts it in chapter fifty. So Joseph and his brothers, I'm sorry, Joseph's brothers are scared. Jacob has died. They don't know what's going to happen. They're nervous. Uh, so they go to him and say, hey, don't forget, your dad wanted you, uh, you to forgive us. Like, don't, don't forget that. And Joseph is a little distraught, and he answers them by saying, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? What an interesting recognition of position here. Like, okay, God is up to something, and I'm not him. I have a role to play in this story, but I didn't write this story. Like I'm not, I'm not in this position to, to condemn. I'm not even in a position to like the character that he wrote for me because I went through some hard stuff. But I'm not God. So, so relax. And then he, he points them to God in verse 20. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. There's the bigger picture. There's the bigger picture that Joseph is grasping. This isn't just about me and what I had to go through. This is about what God is doing for his people and his protection of the promise. And look what's happened. Our people are together, our people are protected, our people are alive. And if I had to go through that because that's what God had for his plan, then so be it. But God is involved in this. This is the bigger picture. He was working all this towards the salvation of his people. And when I say all this, let me just clarify, the famine, the selling into slavery, the wrongfully accused, the in jailment, all of that was part of what God was working for his plan and his purposes. Listen, guys, God sent Joseph into hardship. God sent him into hardship, sent him into difficulty in order to save the brothers that sold him in order to bring about the plan of God for the glory of God. And when you read this story, that's the emotion that you're supposed to get. This kind of awe of God. When when you get to the end and you see this kind of clear, like, oh, this was God. You're supposed to be like, wow, God, you're in all the details. Like, even the sinful things that people do can't, like, thwart your plans, You're supposed to have this kind of bigger view of God after seeing the story. Like, you're over all of it. Even when people try to do evil things, that doesn't stop what you got planned. You're supposed to, like, this was supposed to bring glory to God. It is for Joseph. It is for their brothers. It's like, wow, God, you really do know what you're doing. You really are up to something. Yeah, you may bring us into hard times, but you got good plans and you can be trusted. Like, those are the conclusions that we're supposed to make. But it doesn't make it easy especially when you're in the pit or when you're in the jail or you're wrongfully accused or there's a real famine. But if you want to know where you find the emotional perspective and strength to extend grace and forgiveness in those hard times, I want to draw our attention back to the first part of verse 20 in chapter 50. This is what he says. Joseph's talking to his brothers. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me But God meant it for good. I want us to look at this sentence. I don't know if you're an English major. I'm certainly not. But here's what it is. As for you, you, the brothers of Joseph, you, the brothers of Joseph, meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Now what is the it referring to? Evil. Evil. So you could read this. You meant evil against me, but God meant evil for good. That's how you could read that sentence. God meant evil for good. And he says that he meant it. He meant it. And it's the same word in both words. You meant evil, and God meant, same word, that evil for good. Different different motives here. Now, Don't domesticate this verse so you feel better. Don't filter it through your own emotions so that you can kind of grasp it better. Don't make it say something it doesn't say. Because here's what often happens to this verse. People kind of paraphrase it to say this. You meant it for evil, but God used it for good. It's not what it says. It's not what it means. God didn't just use it for good. He meant it for good. He meant it. Sometimes we try to protect God. Like, oh, my God. God would never do that. God would never throw somebody. God would never put somebody in jail wrongfully. God would never allow somebody to be enslaved. God would never do that. Not my God. The God of the Bible does and did. Listen, shrinking the sovereignty of God is never the answer. One, it's not biblical. And two, it will not bring you the comfort that you seek. And you are seeking comfort in the pit. And you are seeking comfort when you're wrongly accused. And you are seeking comfort when you're in jail. And if you could somehow think like, well, this, this isn't really what God is up to, then you feel, you feel better about that. But a small God does not provide big comfort. You don't shrink God. We don't have a small God who just reacts to things or uses things. We have a big God who plans things, who governs things, who ordains things, who controls all things. God decides. God decides where the lightning strikes. God decides what the king does. God decides where the wind blows. God governs all things, or he's not God. God doesn't call audibles. Like if you're a football fan and kind of wrapping up the football season, an audible, like a coach called a play and the quarterback comes up to the line and he looks at the defense. He's like, nope, let's call something different. God didn't call audibles. He's like, here's my plan. You sold him? I didn't see that coming. Now now we got to like change things up. Let's do this instead. No, God doesn't call audibles. He's always in control and his plans carry out. Listen, if you think God just uses bad things for good. You make God out to be just a reactor and not a planner. And that's not true. And it's not comforting. God's not just out there reacting to this, and I'll react to this, and oh, this came up, and I'll react to that. God's a planner. He's in control, and he can be trusted. That's a big difference. Guys, God governs all things, even sinful things. But he never, listen to me, he never wills sinful things sinfully. You track with me on that? He never wills sinful things sinfully. The brothers, they had a sinful motive. You meant it for evil. God did not have a sinful motive. He meant it for good. There's a good plan behind it. There's a good purpose behind it. Listen, guys, this is comforting because there is purpose in your pain. Even when you can't see it, even when you don't understand it, there is purpose in your pain. I love this passage. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 17. It says, for this light momentary affliction, he's talking about life, life in this broken, fallen world. This light momentary affliction is, what is it doing? Preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Everything that we go through is part of this God's unfolding plan. It's, I'm preparing you for something better. Like this is working out in my plan for Joseph. He was prepared for this moment. He was, Think of it this way. Can you imagine the reunion Joseph had with his father? Let's just zoom in on the hug. This, this is worship language, right? If you could just, the embrace that Joseph had with his dad, Jacob, was glorious. And it's an embrace he would not have had if he were just out in the afternoon shepherding the flock and came home for dinner. It was an embrace and an appreciation and a value that he learned through 22 years of persecution in his life. It was glorious. And it was a gift. Joseph and his brothers were prepared to be better worshipers of God. Because after walking through something like that, it's like, I see how involved and sovereign God is in everything. Joseph is a better worshiper in Genesis 50 than he was back in Genesis 33, 34, 35. This was preparing Joseph. There's good purposes behind it. Do you think Joseph was was thinking when he's in the pit where he's in the jail I just got to hold on for a few more years and pretty soon I'm going to be second in charge of all of Egypt Do <laughs> you think know, what was going through his mind I mean did he know that I mean he had faith he had these dreams from God he had confidence that God is a faithful God but he had no clue how this was all going to work out he would have never have guessed pretty soon I'm going to be living in the palace just biding my time no clue And we have no clue the things that we go through, how God ordains things to work and impact and shape and conform us. No clue. God is sovereign over all. And here's what we do know. We do have a place in the palace coming. We do have a reunion coming. It's not in Egypt. It's in heaven with our Maker. Like, we can look to that. Guys, this story is such a shadow of the bigger story. Joseph, loved by his father. Who's that? Jesus. Mistreated by his brothers. Jesus. Sold for some silver by someone thought to be a brother. Jesus. Became a servant. Jesus. Taken for dead. Jesus. Jesus but really risen to power in order to bring salvation to those who betrayed him. Jesus, how big and awesome is our God. He can be trusted in all circumstances. He knows what he's doing. We don't have a small God, we have a big God. This is a passage that's often referred to and kind of trying to wrap your mind around this, but this is uh, Romans eight twenty eight. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And here's what he's saying here. That God has purposes. He has plans. And all things, all things, even the bad things, are working towards fulfilling his purpose and his plans, his ordained like goals and plans. And for those that love God, not everybody, not everybody, but those who love God and are called according to his purposes, it ends good. It ends good. And that doesn't mean that evil isn't evil. It just means that God is sovereign over even evil. I mean, you think about it. What is the greatest evil of all time? The greatest evil that our world has ever seen in all of history? The death of Jesus Christ. The death of the Son of God. And who killed Jesus? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Was it his dad? Look at Acts 4. This is what it says. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. They were gathered there, and they were truly against Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They meant it for evil. Oh, they hated him. They wanted to hang him on a cross. They meant it for evil, and God meant it for good. He meant it for good. And what did Jesus do on the cross to the people that so grossly mistreated him? He forgave them because he knew it wasn't just their cruelty but also God's plan. And what what did Joseph do to his brothers who so grossly mistreated him? He forgave them because he knew it wasn't just their cruelty. It was also God's plan. People who recognize a sovereign God more easily extend serious grace. Like, is this not you? Like, you don't have the power to wreck my life. There's a sovereign God over you. There's a sovereign God over this situation. And he's up to things. And I can trust him. And I can be able to extend forgive, forgiveness and grace when I do that. I mean, think about it, guys. What if the evil that has been done to you, the wrongs, the way that you were mistreated, is also a part of God's plan to shape you, to grow you, to unfold his work in this world, if that's the case, how angry should you be? People who recognize a sovereign God more easily extend serious grace. When you're able to see behind the words that were spoken to you, behind the things that were done to you, to a God who is on the throne, a God who is in control, a God who doesn't let anything happen unless he says so, and he loves you, and he's full of grace and mercy, and he can be trusted. Then you're not so wrecked by what others do to you. They don't have the power to wreck your life because they don't run this life, they don't run this world. Now, that doesn't mean things don't hurt. Hear me on that. That doesn't mean things don't hurt. Do you know how many times Joseph just runs out of the room crying in this story? Because it hurts. His brothers sold him. It hurts. But it gives our pain some perspective it gives our pain some perspective because maybe you are wrecked by whatever you've do- dealt with or dealing with and maybe you're holding on to some anger right now and when I you know the situation you know the person and it's just eating you up even just bringing up this topic you're a little worked up you're mad at me you're mad at this church now, you're mad that they were talking about it. You're just mad because you were hurt and it hurts. But what if, and I, I'm telling you this as somebody who loves you, what if your real problem is not what was done to you or what was said to you? What if the bigger problem is that your view of God is small, that you don't see the sovereignty of God in all things? I mean, if you did, you'd have to be mad at him how could you let that happen to me? how could you let us go through that? Where were you when that happened? How could you let my brothers sell me into slavery? How could you let me be wrongly accused of sexual misconduct? How could you throw me in jail? How could you bring a famine on this land? How could you let us be enslaved for 400 years? Maybe you are mad at God. But if so... Maybe you're missing the big picture. You can't see that he is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory, that you will have an embrace with your heavenly father that you would not have if you had not walked through what you walked through. Maybe you're missing the big picture. And if you're missing the big picture, your peace is probably really conditional. And your worship is probably pretty weak. And the grace you extend to others is probably small. But if you can embrace the sovereignty of God, like knowing that that phone was even supposed to ring in that moment. So now you're going to lean in. It's not just some nerdy theology. Like it matters to your heart every day. It matters to the grace that you give others. It matters to the worship you give our God. It matters to the peace you have In the hospital, or whatever you're going through, because here's the hard, revealing truth about being a a person who's a bad forgiver of others. The good that all things are working towards in Romans eight twenty-eight is being conformed to the image of Jesus. That's the good that it's. That's what God said. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to grow you. I'm going to sanctify you, and I'm uh, eventually preparing you to be reconciled to your heavenly Father. That's the good that everything in this life is working towards. So if you get that. And you see God's sovereign hand in all things. You see the bigger picture that whatever I go to, it's conforming me to the image of Jesus. It's sanctifying me. It's shaping me. It's preparing me for heaven. But hear me now. When you are unable to forgive someone, it shows that whatever they did to you or whatever they took from you is something you treasure more than being conformed to the image of the Son. That stinks. Because I don't want to learn dependence on this hospital bed I just want to be healthy. I don't want to know you more closely because I had to walk through this and lose my job. I just want my job. And it shows what you really treasure. But for those who love God, for those that love God, bring on all things if it means a closer walk with Jesus. Jesus. Bring on all things if it means conforming me to the image of the Son. So here's what we need to do. Let me give you some quick application here. You need to zoom out. And maybe that's language you could tell yourself in this moment or when you're kind of just being a, a good friend to somebody, walking through difficult things. You need to zoom out. And what I mean by that is when we're, when we're in the pit, all we see is the walls around us, Right? All we see is what that person said to me, what they did to me, and how unfair it is, and how unright it is. Like, that's all we see. But if you could zoom out, because let's be honest, if Joseph Brothers would have shown up when he was in jail, I don't know if it would have gone the same way. <laughs> but from this perspective, like on the other side of it, he's like, now I see God's hand in it. I see it. He was more able to extend grace and forgiveness. But what if by faith you knew the other side of it? You knew that there's a day that every tear will be wiped from your eye and God will make all things new. And what if you saw whatever you're going through now from that lens? What if your pain and your anger and your hurt was seen in light of a sovereign God who is good and working out his good plan? Because let me warn you if you don't, if you don't, you will be wrecked by the evil of people in this world. You're going to be mad. You're going to be angry. You're going to hold on to it. You're going to turn bitter. If you can't see God's sovereign hand in all things, you'll be wrecked by the evil people in this world instead of in awe the sovereignty of God. But church, when we know God's character, that he's good, that he's loving, that he's full of grace and mercy, and we know God's sovereignty, that he governs all things, it's comforting. Even when things are a mess, it's comforting. It's comforting. There's a good God in control of this, and he's working things out. It enhances our worship. Like, how awesome is this God that he works every detail towards his plans, and any kind of sinful endeavor can't thwart his plans? He's sovereign over it all. How worthy of He is our, of our worship. And it increases our capacity for, for, to forgive because it's not just you that said that. It's not just you that did that. I know that you're still functioning in the plans of my Heavenly Father, and He can be trusted. That's so comforting. So, church, as we turn our attention to communion, we want to be loving people. We want to be people of peace. We want to be people who worship God. We want people who extend grace and forgiveness to people. But let's not forget we're the brothers in this story. We're the ones in desperate need of forgiveness. And God sent his son to be a servant. To suffer for our good and our benefit. How great is our God? How worthy of trust and worship is our God? Amen? All the time. All the time, He's great. All the time, He's worthy of worship. Let's pray. Father, I know that there's people in this room that just talking about forgiveness or the ways they've been wronged, just have a a clenched fist, or just holding on to anger and hurt. I pray that as we turn our eyes to your sovereignty, we would would loosen that grip, we would hold our hand open, and we just trust you. And we would treasure most of all to be conformed to better reflect you knowing that you use all things to do that, I pray that we embrace whatever you bring our way and we walk with a peace, a confidence, we worship with a passion, and we extend grace to others because we know it's you in control and you can be trusted. We pray this in your name. Amen.